Hey guys, it's Jessica. And this is Kendra. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. I have a cat on my lap. It's the first <laughs> time she's come to sit on my lap while we've started recording. I know. We'll see. She might say hello to everyone today. Maybe. <laughs> we always try to get her in, but it's always like just off in the distance. And yeah. so we end up cutting it. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had a full Safira moment yet, but no, no, it's really. coming. Don't worry. I was thinking the other day, or actually while I was driving over here, December marks the one year kind of anniversary that we started the whole idea of Lucid Lab. That's true. Because it was like right before Christmas, we mm-hmm. met up for a happy hour. And, we did. And here we are. These two random girls who didn't know each other. <laughs> no, we were like on our first date. <laughs> we were. <laughs> Went to a little tapas place and then I ended up kind of tipsy back at her place. <laughs> yeah, I think we hung out for like six hours. We did. <laughs> it was funny. And then the next day you're like, I've got an idea for the name because that's how we came up with yeah. the whole idea of what the show was going to mm-hmm. be. And then you came up with Lucid Lab and here we are. Oh my goodness. A year later. I can't believe it's already been a year almost. It's been a blur. Yeah. Whoa. But I am very proud of what we've done in the last year. I'm very happy with everything Same. that we have. And I want to just keep going and keep building this, you know, lab rat clan that we have started. Yeah. And I bet you there are so many people who are like, they're still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> they probably never thought we were going to ever put out an episode. But here we are because we are determined right? people. You don't know me. If you think I'm not going to do what I say I'm going to do. <laughs> that is true. I yeah. think that was something we liked about each other is both of us follow through. Like, yeah, if I, even if I don't want to do it after I've committed to something, there will be times I'm like, I'm going to go do this. And that night I don't want to. I will still make myself go do it because right. it's like I said I would. Yeah. Unless I'm, you know, deathly ill or something. Yeah. I'm going to make it happen. Right. So It's rare that I don't do what I say I'm going to do. And if anything the things that I don't do that I say I'm going to do is like a promise to myself or something. Oh, yeah. I'm really good at not following through, working out. Yeah. It's like, sorry, Jessica, not today. Something like, you know I what? wanted. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. And I am tired. I'm always tired. So we kind of along the same lines of what we did in October thought it would be interesting to pull up stories that have something to do with Christmas time. So that's what I'm presenting today is a Christmas time story. And I don't even know what you're talking about at no. all. I don't know the title. <laughs> I, think I told you. <laughs> nothing. So I'm actually really interested. I think I put on the calendar Christmas true crime because I wasn't really <laughs> sure what I was going to do. But it's a story that has a lot of relevance today, I feel like, still. My case today is about the murder of Harry and Harriet Moore. This did occur on Christmas night of 1951. Harry was a big part of the civil rights movement. He actually was ahead of the civil rights movement because the really big civil rights movement started in late 1950s and he was kind of before his time and did a lot of work. And so we're going to go into some history. You know, we've talked about on this show many times that maybe we weren't taught everything because there's a lot of Mm -hmm. darkness in the U.S. history. And this story, unfortunately, will show some of that darkness and just how mean people can be. Okay. I don't think I've heard this story. I may have. I've listened to so many podcasts. Maybe it's somewhere, but it's not ringing a bell for me. I had a hard time finding podcasts that had done this. So okay. I think it's a, it's a case that hasn't been done. I found like maybe two podcasts that were kind of more obscure that had done this. Okay. So hopefully I'm bringing something new to the world. Yeah. To me. I know that you will probably have a lot to say mm-hmm. during this story. It's going to bring up just, you know, we both hate injustice and Mm -hmm. you know just when things are not fair and people are treated one way just because of how they look oh okay get ready all righty 
So on Christmas night of 1951, Harry and Harriet Moore had yet to open any of their presents. Instead, they were waiting to celebrate once their youngest daughter, Evangeline, would arrive from Washington, D.C. on the train the morning after Christmas. The Moores also had cause for another celebration because Christmas night of 1951 also marked their 25th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. So their children were grown. Yes, their children were grown. They're waiting for Evangeline to come home. Their other daughter was in the house with them. And Harry's mother, Rosa, was also there. So before going to bed, they shared a sweet moment contemplating their 25 years of marriage and had some cake. And then they went to bed. Sadly, that night in their home in rural Mims, Florida, the African-American couple became victims of a horrific terrorist attack at the hands of those who wanted to silence them and others like them. Uh, Okay. Attributed mostly and still to this day, we believe the KKK was involved. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) In the years before his death, Harry Moore was increasingly a marked man and he knew it. But he had begun charting the course in the 1930s when he worked tirelessly to register black voters. Mm. He later expanded his efforts into fighting injustice in lynching cases. Florida had more lynchings per capita than any other state at the time. Interesting. I don't know if I knew that. I learned a lot in this. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense if you know what's going on in Florida today. The roots of this started so long ago. And that's why you continue to see the, the racial unrest, I think, that we see today. So all of this organizing that Harry Moore did had caught the attention and the disdain of the KKK. Ugh. Fuck the KKK. <laughs> so I want to read a quote from one of... <laughs> I'm sorry, that sounded like a Christmas jingle Fuck for us. Fuck the KKK. <laughs> it is Christmas time. Why not? Christmas jingle. <laughs> New one. So I want to read a quote from one of Harry Moore's good friends. And he said, Harry T. Moore understood that we had to make a better way. We had to change what was going on here in the state of Florida. Traveling around the state on roads where it was too dangerous to even use a public restroom, many of his friends and his mother worried he'd be killed. But he kept on going because he knew it was bigger than himself. Mm. And yet, despite his immense sacrifice and the nation's initial shock when he was assassinated, Moore's name soon faded from the long list of civil rights martyrs. Today, I'm hoping by bringing this story that we can revive his legacy and the work that he did to build the foundation for the large civil rights movement that would begin gaining traction with the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, which Mm -hmm. is what desegregated the schools. And then we go on to Rosa Parks and MLK Jr., the ones that we know. Right. Harry T. Moore paved the way as he pushed for the South to progress and treat black Americans as equal human beings. The amount of discrimination and hate that was put towards black people back in the 1930s, 1940s in the southern states is just... Mm-hmm. unbearable to listen to. I don't have the same perspective as those who live this day in and day out because I'm a white girl, but I hope to honor Harry and Harriet Moore and bring this case to light so that others like me who maybe don't know a lot of this history can see right. why there's so many people today still pushing for justice for things that happened years and years ago because it's just... Well, because we constantly see it, it's like a yo-yo. They're like, oh, here's some rights. Just kidding. And in areas, we still have racism. And it doesn't even matter. You might be in an area where you never thought about that once, but you run into one person at a gas station. They happen to be racist. And then you experience it. Right. And it's jarring. And when we see it, we're like, whoa, because that's not in our daily world, but it's we're not black. 
Right. So we don't see the eyes staring at us. We don't know what is experienced on a daily basis in some areas, you know? So I don't know. We can only imagine. I found while I was researching this, a man named Bob Avakian, and he was writing about how we progress as a society. And I just really like this quote. So I want to kick off with this. He said, one of the three things that has to happen in order for there to be real and lasting change for the better is that people have to fully confront the actual history of our country and its role in the world up until today and the terrible consequences of this. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like that's what we've been talking about. We won't go into it again today, but we have brought up on several episodes now about what's going on in Israel and Mm -hmm. and finding out things about our country. And to me, this is why I think I was drawn to this story as well, because we have an ugly past here in America. We do. And I'm going to uncover some of that today. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't run from it. We do need to talk about it. We need to reflect on where our country has come from. Just like we did in the Roanoke, we looked at how the Native Americans were treated by the colonizers years ago. We need to talk about how Black Americans were treated even after slavery was over. Because it's not like when the Emancipation Proclamation happened, everything was rosy. Because it wasn't and it still Mm -hmm. isn't today Mm -hmm. in many areas. We need to understand this history in a way to also know the government and these acts that are getting passed because we're being told one thing of what one thing is about but what we don't know is by passing this it discriminates against these people or it does this in this area and I never wanted to be part of it in my life and now it's like god we have to now it's all we can think about (laughs) I also think this story is very relevant right now because if you've been following the news in Florida right now there is a big push to change the history books there. There is actually someone, and I'm not even making this up, there is someone in their legislation that wants to promote that slavery was good for black Americans. And this is happening in the state of Florida. (sighs) So bringing Harry Moore to the forefront and talking about what he faced back in those days is very important because there are people in Florida that want to whitewash the history completely. And it's not just that, because once one thing gets let through, then other things get let through because they're talking about burning women like witches just because it's fun. And guys should be able to burn a witch without a reason. Right. (laughs) Burn a woman. (laughs) Whoops, I'm a witch. (laughs) It's always going to open it up for other people to be like, oh, okay, well, I don't like this either. So let's get rid of that. We have to fight for the rights of every single human being because if one group is discriminated against, like you said, it's going to open it up for anyone else to Mm -hmm. be discriminated against. And it's not right. We're all humans. We all just want to live our lives, love, have families, fulfill our dreams. And who cares what we look like on the outside or who we love? And sadly, it already started with taking over women's rights in many states. Cans of worms have been opened. And now that we know everything else is going on in the world... But this this is why we have to tell a story, because if they're going to take it out of the history books, at least this will be out there. This will be out there. So let's talk about Florida back in the day. So Florida was anything but a paradise for anyone who went there in the early 20th century. Florida was a very poor area. Most families, they made 50 percent less than the rest of the country at the time. Interesting. Children only attended school two months out of the year in Florida. Most of their economy was based on farming. Mm-hmm. If you were black in Florida, your conditions were even worse. The laborers and sharecroppers were mostly the black Americans, and they lived well below living wages. In 1916, Sidney Katz was elected as governor of Florida. He was a former Baptist preacher. He won on the platform of warning about the dangers of alcohol, Jews, and black people. He didn't call them black people, though. He liked to use the N-word very frequently and openly. Mm. 
He campaigned against any public school for black children, stating clearly that they were an inferior race and he did not believe in spending money to educate them. He felt like we must focus on the white kids first since they were the future of Florida. This was an open governor in 1916. I know. Against Jews, huh? That's interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Anti-Semitic, anti-black, and also alcohol for whatever reason. I guess because that was during Prohibition time. Yeah. 1916. A Baptist preacher. Mm. Mm. You know, love everyone and Mm -hmm. all that jazz. (laughs) You said all that jazz. Now I'm doing it. I caught it from you. So when your governor is openly racist, that just brings everybody feeling like they can be out in the open with it. And the KKK was huge in Florida. Their numbers were rising. Yeah. Black Americans began migrating out of Florida as they felt unwelcomed and targeted under this new leadership. Yeah, it would feel dangerous. It was. But the Moore family was not one that chose to leave. They stayed in their Houston, Florida town near the banks of the Sewanee River. Houston, Florida was referred to as a whistle stop town. Have you ever heard that? I haven't. You don't really go there unless you need to stop in and just drop somebody off. Oh, okay. It was a largely black settlement. Mm-hmm. They all lived there and then worked on the farms nearby. It was a residential stop, not a city stop. The real town in the area was called Live Oak, and it was the next stop up. Live Oak, Florida, did not believe in the Emancipation Proclamation. They were very open that they didn't believe that black people had the right to be free, basically still treated them much as slaves, even though they paid them meager wages to work on their farms. There was one black family that actually was able to own their own large farm in the black settlement of Houston, Florida. And their daughter was named Rosa Tyson, and she married a man named Johnny Moore. Johnny and Rosa welcomed their first and only child, Harry Tyson Moore, on November 16, 1905. Not much is known about Harry's father, Johnny. His job was to fill up the big water tank for the trains that would pass nearby their home. When Harry was about eight years old, his father's health began to decline. They don't really know what happened. And he would pass away just one year later when Harry was only nine years old. So Mm -hmm. Harry would then be raised by his mother, Rosa, as a single mom. She was very protective and loving of her only child. Yeah. She had also come from a family, the Tyson family, who owned their own land. And she had been very well educated. And they taught her and her sisters that they did have a place in society. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to educate and do the same thing for her son. So Rosa sent Harry away to Jacksonville, Florida, when he was around 11 years old, because she felt it was very important for him to be well educated. And there was not that opportunity. There were no schools for black children in their town. In the early 1900s, Jacksonville was a cultural and intellectual outpost for black people. It was called the Harlem of the South. Mm. And prominent African-American artists, musicians, actors, writers, they all made the city their home. Nice. Businesses were owned by black people there. So it was quite an eye-opening experience when Harry left his small town of Houston, Florida and went to Jacksonville. He saw people that looked like him. They owned their own businesses. Mm -hmm. They were out doing things that white people were only allowed to do where he grew Mm -hmm. up. So it really opened his mind and expanded his vision for what his future could look like. Yeah. So he would live in Jacksonville from the age of 11 until 14 with his three unmarried aunts. (laughs) That's kind of cool. And he was the center of their (laughs) world. They spoiled him rotten. His aunts weren't just regular women. They were all very accomplished themselves. His aunt Jackie was a nurse. Adriana was a principal of a school. Mm. And Maisie was a teacher. So he had three very intellectual women. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine them as these cool witches. (laughs) Right. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. 
they were above average for the time. This is not something that most women, even white women, weren't principals of schools. And for it to be black women, like they were badass. Yeah. So this was life changing for him. And he lived there for three years. He probably would have stayed longer. But his mom, Rosa, missed him dearly because Mm -hmm. he was her beloved son. And so she brought him back because by that time in 1919, there had been a school established in Live Oak. He was able to play baseball, but he was described as not very athletic. (laughs) He was what they all called bookish. He was nerdy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was having this conversation with my daughter on the way to take her somewhere. She was talking about a couple kids. She's like, you know, they're kind of famous. And I was like, famous? I was like, you mean popular? Uh huh. <laughs> and she was like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of nerdy. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I was like, that's all right, honey. <laughs> so Harry's nickname was Doc in school. There was even a story of him solving a math problem that the teacher couldn't figure out. Oh. And he got up there and figured it out for him. Mm-hmm. So he's very studious. He was a straight A student. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about Florida and what the climate was like. Sticky. <laughs> <laughs> it's always sticky and hot and gross. But the political climate, it was still oh. very hostile. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk about the weather. <laughs> like it's That's very sticky. important to this story. <laughs> it was still very hostile to African-Americans. As I said, his formative years were ones of pervasive racial violence, often unchecked by officials or I would say even promoted by officials. Right. Turning a blind eye to locals of the area. Absolutely. So right before the 1920 election, the Ku Klux Klan marched in downtown Orlando specifically to intimidate black voters from going to the polls. So this was the time that Harry was back, you know, for this in central Florida and going to school. So he's seeing this going on around him. There was also another African-American man named July Perry. He was just coming in for the polls, the 1920 election. And he showed up and he was like, I don't care. I'm going to vote, even though the KK was there. Mm. Yep, that's what you do. He was dragged out. He was beaten. He was shot and he was hung from a light post. Oh, my God. That wasn't enough for them. They went to the primarily African-American town where he came from and they burned it in a rampage that killed dozens of innocent black people. Oh, my God. For decades after, Okoe had no black residents and was known as what they call a sundown town. And even now, that town has never recovered. Today, the city that was once 100% African-American is now only 20%. So like these kinds of things were Mm. a daily basis for Harry. mm. In 1925, he did receive the equivalent of a high school diploma from the Florida Memorial College. He became a ninth grade teacher at the Titusville Colored School in Titusville, Florida. So this would move him from central Florida to the coast. Titusville is more like over by Cocoa Beach and Daytona Beach. As a teacher at Titusville School, that's really when his activism began. He would bring his own materials and he was educating students about their black history. He wanted Mm. them to know things that were not in the curriculum books. He would also teach them how to vote. He would bring in ballots and say, this is how you vote. And he would educate them on like looking into who was running in the campaigns. And And the students at the time were like, but we're not allowed to vote. Even though they were technically allowed to vote, there was so much voter suppression in Florida. Mm. Nobody felt safe to vote. And he said, I'm preparing you. For the Mm -hmm. time when you can openly vote because it's very important. And to make sure that the people they voted for took their interests seriously. I was looking into some of this about voter suppression of black Americans, specifically in Florida, and how they kept them from voting is there was a poll tax and it would be way more money than they could afford. They had to pay to vote. Yes. 
Everyone did. The wow. other thing that they did is that they had political parties. So they still had the Democratic and I think it was the Republican Party or Democratic something. I don't know. But they were considered private clubs. Oh. And they could discriminate against black people and say, no, only white people can be part of these clubs. And if you're not part of that club, then you can't vote. There were a lot of things in place in Florida to make sure that black Americans could not vote. It's so crazy going back in history because what you just described, I'm like, God, this country's so young. And look at all the bullshit we've done. Right. This is insane. <laughs> and I've never heard of this. Me either. I didn't know you had to pay to vote. And you're making it sound like, oh, yeah, it's just a gentleman's club, <laughs> the Democrats and it the was. Republicans. And and that's who ended up becoming leaders of this country and now run everything. And our votes don't matter in no. a lot of areas. And the president, whatever, he's a fu- fucking puppet. They don't even do anything. Like, there's yeah. nothing there. So just months after Harry began teaching, he met a woman named Harriet Sims. She was three years older than him. She was very smart. She had also been a teacher. When he met her, she was working as an insurance broker, helping black residents in Jacksonville, Florida, get insurance policies. Oh, okay. And they have the same name. Yes. And they actually (laughs) talked about that on their first date. Harry and Harriet. They were like just two peas in a pod. They were both very smart. And friends said that they couldn't imagine one without the other. They Mm -hmm. just instantly fell in love. Let's talk a little bit about Harriet. The spy. (laughs) (laughs) Harriet was born on June 19, 1902. She's a fellow Gemini. (laughs) She was born in West Palm Beach, Florida to David and Annie Sims. Her father was a wood lathe worker and she had two sisters and four brothers. Her family relocated to Mims, Florida for her father's work and Harriet often spent summers working outside with her father. Wait, what was their last name? Sims. Sims in the Mims. My brain. <laughs> like, I had I had to stop for a second. Mike, wait. <laughs> the Sims are in the Mims. The Sims are in the Mims. <laughs> she attended the segregated Daytona Normal Industrial Institute in Daytona, Florida, and she also received a high school degree. And after graduation, she taught elementary classes in Merritt Island and Mims. She would also help cook lunch every day for the students. Oh, that's nice. Harry and Harriet would marry less than a year after meeting each other. They got married on Christmas Day of 1926. Oh, well, damn. That makes us sad. Well, yeah, it was their 25th. I know, but you don't think about it until you hear it again. Yeah. (laughs) They kept their marriage a secret for six months because they were worried that Harry's mom, Rosa, would not approve. And they were right. (laughs) Oh, why, though? Because Rosa was very protective of her son. What's not good about an educated woman? I'm confused. I don't know. She was three years older, I think was a big deal back in the time. But for whatever reason, Rosa and Harriet's uh, relationship would always feel strained. I think it's oh, just because the it was her women. only child. Yeah, that was her baby. And then a woman took, I, I don't know. Yep. That still happens today. They did get married anyways. He didn't care. He knew it pissed his mom off. They kept it hidden for six <laughs> months. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then she found out and yeah, it was fine. Like I said, all of the friends described them as just the perfect little pair. In 1927, Harry was promoted to the position of principal at the Titusville Colored School. In 1928, the Moors had their first daughter, Annie. She was named after Harriet's mother Mm -hmm. and her nickname. And to this day, I think she still goes by Peaches. (laughs) Oh, that's cute. This was a big year for the Moors as they also moved into their own home with an acre of land that was given to them by Harriet's parents in Mims, Florida. So this was a very big deal for black Americans. Mm -hmm. They had their own little slice of America, I guess, at the time. Can't even get that in a lot of areas. I can't afford an acre. (laughs) 
So in Mims, Florida, most people made their wages from the orange groves there. They called it the Florida gold mm-hmm. oranges. Mm-hmm. If you were black, you picked oranges for the white grove owners. Harry became an exception in the area because he was able to use the money that he earned from principal of a school. And then he had that acre of land and he actually started his own small orange grove. Oh, nice. Yeah. That makes me want an orange right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know orange juice sounds kind of good. He was hoping that the profits that he made from their own orange grove would provide for their family's retirement. They gave birth to their second daughter, Evangeline, whom they would refer to as Van in 1930. I'd call her Vanny. Vanny, that'd be cute. <laughs> I like Evangeline. I think that's a pretty it name. It is pretty. It's just a long name to say. Yeah. So after Evangeline was born, Harriet returned to her career in education, and she began working as a teacher at the same school as Harry was principal. It was very important to Harry and Harriet that their daughters grow up feeling like they could do whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Harriet had worked as a maid several years before she met Harry and while she was in school. And this was something Harry was very adamant his daughters would never do. He said even if they really needed money, he did not want them waiting on white people, cleaning their houses, cooking their meals. He didn't want them to feel like that was their place in life. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) They also lived in an area where everything was still segregated. So if you wanted to go to the movies or you wanted to even go shopping It was very clear that there were certain parts you were not allowed to be in Mm. as a black American. If you went to the movies, you had to sit in a special area. And Harry would not allow his girls to be subjected to that. So if they ever wanted to see a movie, they would drive 45 miles. To Jacksonville? To Daytona Beach, actually. And there was a black-owned theater there. Nice. He's like, if we're going to go to the movies, we're going to go to the movies like a normal family. Yeah. And if you're from Florida, I have no idea where anything is. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I don't know how close Jacksonville is. He believed in equity and he never wanted his daughters to think they were lesser than the white people around them. Makes sense. I love it. In 1933, one of Harriet's cousins, who was a grove worker in MEMS, received some materials in the mail from the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Mm-hmm. Her cousin was afraid when he received this because he felt like just being associated with the NAACP would be a death sentence living in the Deep South. He brought this to Harry Moore and Harry was like, I'm all about it. This is just what I have been waiting for. And that would start his career in activism. He would become very active with the NAACP for the next 18 years until his death. The NAACP had been very active, started in the northern states, but in the southern part, it hadn't taken hold, mainly because, as Harriet's cousin said, they were afraid to be openly, Mm -hmm. you know, about it and fighting for their rights. But Harry wanted to make things better. And so he actually was probably the number one source for growing the NAACP in Florida. Wow. So he and his wife, Harriet, opened the first chapter for their county, Brevard County, and annual dues to join the NAACP at the time was $1. I'll pay. (laughs) (laughs) Which was actually a lot for a lot of black Americans at the time. Sometimes it's a lot for me. I don't have a dollar to give to (laughs) give away. I know when you're like checking out and they're like, do you want to round up to help? I'm like, mm. I'm like, I don't trust you're actually <laughs> going to give it to who you're saying, I by agree. the way. I agree with that. I yeah. think they're just taking it for themselves. I'll give it to somebody outside that needs to go eat something. I feel like they do the same thing with tips at so many places. Oh, I've I know. Read things like you mm-hmm. think you're helping the you know kids that you know are not making any money and it's just going straight to the franchise owner. Well, a lot of restaurants make them all split. Yeah, they do that too. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. As long as it's going to the workers, Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. 
Once more was part of the NAACP in 1937, he became very vocal and an advocate for challenging the chasm between black and white teachers' salaries in his local county. He pushed for a lawsuit. He got the NAACP involved, and they actually took it to the Florida state. Black teachers at the time were making one half of the salary paid to their white counterparts. This is when Harry Moore would meet Thurgood Marshall, which I think you might, I've heard that name before. He was the lawyer for the NAACP and he became a Supreme Court justice later on in his career. Okay. This would start their professional collaboration. But although the lawsuit made it to the Florida Supreme Court, it was shot down. Of course. They didn't care. Moore spent many weekends and a lot of his time organizing and increasing the membership in the NAACP throughout Florida. And in 1941, he was appointed as president of the NAACP. He also formed the Progressive Voters League in 1944. This is a quote by another one of Harry's friends. He said, He understood the significance of the power of the vote, and he understood the significance of the power of the pen. He would write letters and type letters to anyone and everyone that would listen, and he knew that African Americans had to have a voice, and they had to have it by voting. It's true back then. It's the only thing that they had. Mm -hmm. They couldn't just openly talk about what they thought because they would be lynched, literally. Right. He would encourage all black people to vote and he would show up in their churches or in other places where they gathered and he would educate them on what the candidates believed in and who would be best for the black cause. He was described as very calm and collected. He was never like that fire and brimstone guy. He never got very spirited. He would never raise his voice. He would just make Mm. very valid points. Yeah. That was very convincing. He wasn't a preacher. No. (laughs) I think of like Jesse Jackson or even Martin Luther King Jr. They were very just charismatic and like, whoa, like, right. That wasn't it it grabbed attention, but he did it in a different way. He wrote a lot of letters. I didn't put a lot of them in the episode, but I saw many in the documentaries and I read many through books and he was a very well-written man. He used his skills. He did. (laughs) When Harry began traveling the state in 1934, only 5% of blacks who were eligible to vote were even registered. But by 1950, due to his efforts, that number would rise to 31%. That's decent. It was a number that was higher than any other state in the South. They didn't have a Harry. (laughs) They didn't. He was (laughs) all about it. He's like, you're going to vote. But his success came with risk. Right. Moore was coming into a situation in Central Florida where there was a lot of Klan activity. There were a lot of Klansmen who had positions in government, and it was a very tenuous time for civil rights. People were openly being intimidated and kept away from the polls, and Moore worked diligently to fight that. Nothing's changed. No, they still want to intimidate, especially people of color, from voting. Or they want to confuse them and get them to vote for people who are against their own interests. Yep. It's never stopped. It's never stopped. I mean, they don't want any educated person to vote. They want to, you know, get us to vote emotionally. They'll just like throw out buzzwords and they won't tell us what their real agendas are. Mm -hmm. And the KKK, they're loud and proud still. But the ones in power went underground and they're the people at the top. When I was researching this, I came across a man who worked for the FBI undercover just five years ago in Florida. And he had to speak on complete anonymity here. Mm -hmm. He said the amount of people who were underground in the police force, in the government that were active members of the KKK is absolutely scary. It doesn't surprise me. I think it was about 
maybe close to a decade ago. To me, the KKK was history, right? It's it was not. this history <laughs> thing. And then I remember seeing this video of like 200 people out and about and loud and proud about it. And I was like, I thought that was history. And that's just me being ignorant and not knowing right. what's going on in the world. But once I saw that, I was like, if that's what's just right there for me to see, then I don't even want to know what's hidden in plain sight. And the people really orchestrating all of it are in the very tops yeah. of our government and they're evil. Evil. These are evil, evil people. And I mean, you think about Charlottesville. It didn't happen that long ago. That was probably like, what, eight years ago? Do you remember? Maybe I'm, th- maybe I'm thinking of that. They were just openly marching like, through the streets like, like we in are a parking white supremacists. Lot. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's what I saw. And even at Disney World within the last year, they were full on there because they were all protesting that Disney's become too woke or whatever. They were there in Nazi uniforms. That's fucking scary. Disgusting. Anyways, let's talk about that. So I want to bring up a very big event that happened in December of 1943. There was a boy named Willie James Howard. He was 15 years old and he was an African-American boy and he worked in a local dime store in Live Oak, Florida. So where Harry Moore was from. Mm -hmm. Willie was in the 10th grade. And for Christmas, Willie gave out Christmas cards to all of his coworkers. One of those co-workers was a little girl who was also 15 years old named Cynthia Goff. Oh, no. He signed the card to Cynthia with just the initial L. Yeah. Which I already love, see where right? this is going. Yeah. She takes it home. Papa's mad. Damn. Yeah. She did take it home. She showed it to her dad. He got upset and Willie heard about it. So he heard that she was upset about receiving the card. And on New Year's Day, he delivered a second note to her to explain himself. And in that note, he said, I know you don't think much of our kind, but we don't hate you at all. We want to be friends, but you won't let us. I wish this was a northern state. I guess you would call me fresh. Write and tell me what you think of me, good or bad. I love your name. I love your voice. He said, for a SH, which people believe meant sweetheart, you are my choice. So he's writing a little poem. I love your name. I love your voice. For a sweetheart, you are my choice. Cynthia showed the note to her father. Her dad was Philip Goff, and he was actually a former state legislator. Cynthia, what are you doing? You got to wonder if she wasn't happy about getting it. She was upset because he gave her a Christmas card, and then he tried to explain. It sounded like he had a crush on her. Yeah. He's just an innocent 15-year-old kid. Love is love stuff. And And he was like, I wish things were different. I didn't see anything in it that was wrong, but I don't Mm -hmm. know the time. Mm-hmm. (sighs) Okay. Okay. So on January 2nd, Philip Goff, Cynthia's dad, took two of his white friends and they drove up to Willie's house. Willie's father was at work, so it was just him and his mom, Lula. And she described that day. She said that they showed up, they grabbed Willie and ordered him to come along with them. She tried to pull her son back and yeah. kept pleading like, "What? what's going on? Why are you getting my boy? And she said that Mr. Goff pulled a revolver out and pointed it at her. And then he dragged Willie out to the car and got in with the other men and they drove off. The three white men with Willie in the car then drove to where his father was working and forced his father James into the car as well. Oh, I wasn't seeing that coming. No. Then Goff and his friends drove Willie and his father James to the banks of the Sewanee River. They then tied his hands behind him and then tied his feet together and they forced him to stand at the edge of the river. They then gave Willie a choice. He could either be shot to death or take his chances by jumping into the river. Willie, with his hands and his feet bound, jumped into the river and drowned. His father stood there and watched. They made him like they had brought him along just to see his son killed for having a crush. Yeah. 
for writing a letter to a 15 year old girl that just said he thought she was pretty basically he's like i like you i like your voice it sounds cool he didn't even say anything really graphic in any way the morning after the town's black undertaker was told by the sheriff to go and retrieve willie howard's body from the river the body was immediately buried in an unmarked grave they don't even get a plaque no well i'd go make one with sticks (sighs) Goff then gave a statement to that same sheriff denying he and his two friends had anything to do with the death of the black youth. Of course. Right. Even though they picked him up from his mom and went and got his dad. Nobody from where his dad was working says that that's what's happened. They were all black people. They didn't listen to them. They didn't matter. Fearing for their lives, James and Lula, Willie's parents, along with his siblings, they fled from Live Oak. They moved to Orlando just a few days after he was lynched. So Harry Moore, knowing what happened in this lynching case and being from Live Oak on behalf of the NAACP, wrote letters and demanded that the Florida governor, his name was Spessard Holland, needed to open a full investigation into what happened. Good. But. Of course, but. The grand jury did not return any indictments against Goff and his accomplices. He even rose it all the way up to the U.S. national level when Florida pushed back and they said, no, we can't get involved. This is a state matter. So no one was ever punished for the death of Willie James Howard. R.I.P. Willie. And sadly, there's probably hundreds more stories like this. Not just in Florida, but all over the South back in these Mm -hmm. days. This was just the one that Moore knew about and pushed for. And even though he keeps getting a no, it's the pressure. It's the doing it again and again and again and again and again. And he would be very good at that. Pushing the needle. He needed to. It had to start somewhere. And Harry was willing to risk much more than just his job. He first became involved in anti-lynching efforts with this case. But the perpetual inaction in cases like this, which no one was arrested, tried or convicted, spurred Moore to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. In a letter to Florida's congressional delegation, Moore wrote, we cannot afford to wait until the several states get trained or educated to the point where they can take effective action in such cases. Human life is too valuable for more experimenting of this kind. The federal government must be empowered to take the necessary action for the protection of its citizens. Moore's letters always showed a polite but persistent push for change. His scholarly nature obscured the profound courage it took to stand up to the hostile forces around him in Florida. He was much more behind the scenes, but he was no less aggressive. His letters were very brave. And because of that, in 1946, the state legislators, the governor, everyone that the powers that be decided he was a troublemaker for organizing black voters. And they advocated and did whatever they do behind the scenes. And it led to him being fired from his position (sighs) as principal. And his wife, Harriet, was also fired from her teaching job. Yeah, because he's speaking facts. And they're like, oh, it's kind of one of those things. They're like, well, he knows the truth. Dang. And people are starting to follow him. And people did follow him. And he was, you know, organizing all of these NAACP chapters to push back and vote against them. And they didn't like it. And here was the great thing. I love this. So they were both fired from their teaching jobs. And they thought that would press him down to get him to be quiet. No, he just made orange juice. But they didn't know him. (laughs) They didn't know Harry Moore. And all that did was just fuel his fire. Mm -hmm. So also the NAACP at this point knew that Moore was a valuable part. And they promoted and made him their first full-time paid executive secretary of state. Yeah, they needed someone with cojones to go after it. 
So they had never paid anyone on a state level. And when he lost his job, they were like, no, we want you to keep doing this. So we will pay you. So all they did was make things worse on themselves. And I love it. Yeah. But it takes being brave like that. Otherwise, it's never going to go anywhere. And it was hard to do back then to be brave as a black man. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a death sentence. It was asking for it. So now he could focus purely on the NAACP. And he spent those years building more and more chapters. So when he started out, there were only nine chapters in Florida. And by 1945, when he was promoted to this position, he had expanded it to 53 branches. Wow. Approximately 10,000 members. Impressive. Yeah, very impressive. But Florida government didn't like it. Of course not. (laughs) They're going into their closets to grab a certain white robe. So as Harry Moore continued to be an open advocate against corruption and the police and the brutality that they inflicted against black people, we would see a villain rise to power in Lake County, Florida. A good one or a bad one? He's a villain. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes there's good ones. Depends on what side of the coin you're on. Corn. I just said corn. (laughs) Who's a good villain? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, vampires are good villains, but they also kill people and suck their blood. So that's why I said it depends on what side of the coin you're on when you're thinking about them, because they're going to have good and bad things about them. Well, this guy to the KKK was probably a hero. Oh, well, then very bad villain. But to any normal person, he's an asshole. His name is Willis McCall. He believed their white race was superior to the black race. Mm-hmm. He was a diehard segregationist. And he also felt that we should enforce, this is a new word for me, anti-miscegenation laws. Never heard that word before, but what that is, racial segregation at the level of marriage and intimate relationships by criminalizing interracial marriage and even sex between members of different races. Ugh, gross. He was elected in 1944 as sheriff for Lake County, Florida. He was six foot one and 225 pounds, big old white dude. He liked to carry his gun out in the open and he would wear the stereotypical large white felt bucket hat. He had a black string tie and big old polished boots. And would beat his wife. He's a fucking cartoon character. <laughs> like he's just, yeah. He looked like something straight out of a movie when you're casting the role of white sheriff dude. <laughs> People were afraid of him. Within one year of taking office, there were already six charges against him for police brutality. Oh. Throughout his career, between the state of Florida, the FBI, and civil rights groups, he would be investigated 49 times for brutality against black people. But this was something he was proud of. Mm -hmm. Right up until the day he died, he was proud of this. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. It's so crazy that there's still people like that today. Right. There really are. everywhere. And the scary part in reading this, and I know that we always come across as hating the police. But like I said, that guy who was in the FBI said Mm -hmm. so many people in law enforcement in Florida specifically are connected to the KKK. And it started here. They specifically want these people in those positions. Yep. So Willis McCall in Groveland, he basically worked speaking of this, for the white Orange Grove owners. He was the one that enforced and made sure that black workers were always in supply and showing up for work because the white Grove owners would call him if they felt like any of their workers were slacking. So he was almost the equivalent, he and his posse of slave owners out cracking the whip on black Americans. Mm Mm-hmm. He said it was his role to protect the economy and the individual owners of the groves in Central Florida. Oh, the legacies that some of these guys leave. I hope that 
the younger generations in these families move past. I hope so. Yeah. If this was my great grandfather, I'd be like, he was a fucking asshole. I don't want to be involved with him. I feel sorry for anyone who's related to him because I'm going to skewer him. Right after he was elected, there was something else going on in the world. And that was 1945. It was right after the World War. And a lot of black Americans had been enlisted to fight in the World War. And they had been over in Europe living there as soldiers. And they were seeing that things were different in Europe, that black people were allowed to walk around freely and live like the white people. And so if you had gone over as a black American, as a soldier, you saw a different way of life. And then when you got shipped back, which there were quite a few men getting shipped back to this area in Groveland, and they were being subjected to just going back and working in the fields, they didn't want to. Yeah, They had seen a better way. They had ideas for what they wanted to do, and mm-hmm. they didn't want their lives to be that small anymore. And they fought for the country. Exactly. And they risked their lives. And many of their friends and brothers and all of that died. Mm-hmm. And they didn't feel like they were respected. Willis McCall didn't like that some of them came back with these big notions in their with head. With expectations. Right. <laughs> As they would say back then, they were getting too big for their britches. Did oh. you ever hear that before? I don't know. Willis sounds like he wears a big diaper. <laughs> <laughs> Willis has a small pee-pee. <laughs> Just a nub. Little dick syndrome. <laughs> big trucks. <laughs> he drove the biggest truck in the town. <laughs> So Willis saw it as his job to reacclimate them, get them back in their place. Oh, okay. So all of these factors, I'm telling you, would be involved in a pivotal case that would occur in Groveland, Florida, referred to as the Groveland Four. Many believe this incident and the fight Harry Moore would take on against the Florida government would be what led to the attack that ended up killing Harry and Harriet as they were killed just six weeks after he appealed for justice and the removal of Sheriff McCall. Oh, boy. On July 16th, 1949, Norma Paget, she was a 17-year-old white girl, and her husband were driving home from a dance. And on their way home, they had car trouble, so they pulled over. Mm. According to Norma's story, four black men stopped to help them. But then they suddenly turned violent, overtaking her husband, beating him up, and then violently raping her. Okay. Now, there's uncertainty about whether Paget was actually raped. The prosecution did not question Dr. Jeffrey Beneville. He was the physician who examined her on the night that the rape allegedly took place. According to his records, Beneville could not tell whether she had been raped. He found no evidence of tears or wounds in the vagina. Laboratory analysis of a vaginal smear revealed no presence of whatever they look for that would be in sperm to show that Mm -hmm. she had had four men. Yeah. Like that would have been very obvious. There were also no signs of bruises or breaks in the skin anywhere on her body. So to say you're violently raped by and then four all people. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nevertheless, the day after this was reported, Sheriff McCall and his police officers went looking for four men that he believed were involved. Was her husband actually beat up? I never saw anything about that. Okay. I just saw that it was questionable and that there was a doctor that said he didn't find any signs of that. And then they did not let the defense bring that doctor into the courtroom. And even if he was beat up, maybe he's the one that got violent first and... The other thing that I read is that Norma and her husband were having a lot of marital problems. So there was thought that maybe they were fighting with each other. Maybe she punched him. Oh, you never know. Yeah. And maybe 
there were, you know, men that saw them fighting in a mm-hmm. car and came over to try and help. But yeah, they were trying black men. to help the girl. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't know what exactly happened, but I can tell you what Sheriff McCall decided happened. Right. And he went looking for these four men. He's like, ooh, just what I need. Ernest Thomas, he was around age 17 to 19. We didn't really know much about him. He was married and he was living and working near Groveland. He had actually encouraged his friend Charles Greenlee to come there because Charles was looking for a job. And so Charles Greenlee was 16 years old and he had come to Groveland looking for work because he was married with a pregnant wife. So Charles Greenlee and Ernest Thomas were two friends. And then there were two other men that were suspects, I guess, if you would want to call them that. And that was Walter Lee Irvin. He was 22 years old and he had just returned after serving in the army as a private. And he was recorded as only being five foot three and weighing 105 pounds. Oh, wow. So he's a little guy. And then his friend... Samuel Shepard was also 22 years old. Now, Sammy Shepard's very interesting because McCall did not like him. He had moved from Georgia with his family and his father had achieved ownership of his own farm by clearing and developing former swamp land. So Mm -hmm. his dad came in and took land that nobody else wanted and turned it into a profitable business. Sammy Shepard, he was a veteran of the World War II. And when he came back, he didn't need to go work for the Grove owners because his dad had his own grove. Yeah. McCall didn't like that. Mm. He thought Sammy was acting too uppity Mm -hmm. for his station and he wanted to knock him down. So he already had Sammy Shepard in his crosshairs. Yeah. Sammy Shepard and Walter Irvin, after returning from World War II, they would continue to wear their uniforms around. They wanted people to know that they had fought in the war. Yeah. They were proud of their service. A lot of the local white people resented that fact. You didn't go. (laughs) No, (laughs) fuck them. So the night of the supposed rape, Shepard and Irvin said that they had been together and they were drinking in Eatonville, Florida. They were nowhere near where Norma was. (laughs) They were eating in Eatonville. And then Greenlee and Thomas, who were the other two friends, they were hanging out that night. They were in the area, but they said they did not Um. rape this girl. Yeah, and here's the other thing. Greenlee and Thomas, both of them, they didn't even know Walter Irvin or Sammy Shepard. They mm-hmm. were different age range. So you oh have a 16-year-old and a 17 to 19-year-old yeah, and then two it. 22-year-olds. They weren't hanging out. Uh-huh. But these were the ones that McCall and his posse went after. Two people who wanted things to change, they came back in their uniform, yep. being loud and proud about this is what I did for the country that you're in right now. Treat me better. Right. One who was in his line of sight, his dad owned a farm. Yep. I don't know why he went after Greenlee and Thomas. I think they were just maybe, for all we know, they were two young kids that had talked back to right, somebody. Exactly. We don't really know why we he targeted no them. Mm-hmm. What we do know, according to Charles Greenlee, who was the 16-year-old, he said he was interrogated and beaten in a cell that night when they arrested him until he admitted to the rape of Norma Paget. Good old police interrogations. Ernest Thomas escaped when he heard that Charles Greenlee had been arrested. He knew they were coming for him and he told his wife, I got to get out of here. And he fled Lake County. Mm-hmm. They arrested Sammy Shepard, Charles Greenlee, and Walter Irvin less than 15 hours after the alleged rape had happened. Like I said, Willis took this as an opportunity to send a message to black members of the society to not push back on authority. He already had his eye on Sammy as a troublemaker, and he was happy to go after him. Troublemaker being, you need to work for me, not your dad. 
or he I don't know if he was just vocal I didn't see a lot about it but if you didn't just say yes sir whatever you say sir then you're a troublemaker as a black Mm. American in this area with fucking Mayberry guy walking around in his bucket hat and his big old truck Dingleberry (laughs) I have pictures of these four men I say men loosely because they look like young boys yeah well one is so they're tiny like these so I already talked about what happened to Greenlee and he was taken the 16 year old into a cell and beaten until he admitted to the rape. Mm-hmm. The other two men, the two 22 year olds, Irvin and Sammy Shepard, their account was that the police took them in their patrol car to a secluded spot and ordered them to get out of the car. Mm. Both men were then beaten by police with blackjacks and fists. I'm not real sure what a blackjack is. I think it's the maybe the baton. They were also kicked as they lay on the ground and all the while being asked if they had picked up a white girl the night before. Afterward, they were taken to the spot where the crime actually happened and Deputy Yates inspected Sammy Shepard's shoes, which he had worn the night before. He was frustrated to see that the soles of Sammy's shoes did not match the footprints on the ground at the scene. Frustrated. So there's some people who believe that they did it. The deputy was upset because he thought that these guys did it. And then when they got to the scene, realized that the shoes Sammy was wearing did not match the footprints at the scene. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I'm assuming it's a setup, but there are a couple of them that weren't included in the no, setup. No, probably not. And yeah, so they were saying. expecting it to match and it didn't. And so now he's frustrated. Irvin's <laughs> <laughs> shoes did match the footprints. But he actually said the shoes he had on that day were not the ones he was wearing the night before. It's not like the 1990s where there's tons of shoes out there either. There's probably it's probably like everybody's wearing very similar shoes. I was going to say black Americans probably only shop at one store in town and probably every working man in the Grove had the same pair of shoes. Unless you made them yourself or something. Yeah. So then the two men were taken to Tavares Jail, where they were interrogated in the basement while cuffed to overhead pipes and severely beaten more until they confessed to (sighs) raping this woman. So back to Ernest Thomas. He had fled to avoid arrest. Sheriff McCall put together a posse to hunt him down. This posse was 1,000 men. (sighs) Why? Because they all wanted to go kill a black man. Oh, yeah. They found him about 200 miles northwest of Lake County, and they shot and killed him. (gasps) When he was brought to the coroner, they were unable to determine who had actually killed Thomas because he was shot 400 times. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's no words. So word began spreading about this alleged rape and an angry crowd of white men gathered at the county jail in Tavares and demanded that Sheriff McCall turn the suspects over to them for justice. Mm. Surprisingly, McCall did not turn them over and he actually transported them to a different prison to keep them safe for trial. But that mob wanted something. They were just looking for a reason. They had all come from Central Florida, Orlando area. And so they headed towards Groveland, where two of the suspects and their families lived. They went in and they tried to find out where Sammy Shepard and Steve Irvin's family lived. And they were able to find that out and they burned their homes down. They burned about a dozen other homes. They burned down any little shops that were owned by black residents and basically just started a whole mob scene. Sheriff McCall actually had to call in the National Guard because it just got so out of hand. I mean, was this Sheriff Dingleberry's plan for this to happen? No. Like it got out of hand. He was trying to make a point with choosing them. Right. And And then he didn't realize how many people were like, Oh, okay. I get to kill somebody. That's right. Cool. Let's let <laughs> and this now all happen. the white. Yeah. So all these 
KKK wannabe white dudes saw this as an opportunity to come lynch black people, burn it down because there was just so much hate towards people who were unfounded hate. I and this is still going on today all over the world, and it's I know ludicrous. I don't understand where this hatred I, comes from. I don't understand either because I didn't grow up that way. That was never in my anything. No, me neither. <laughs> I, I I just I have a hard time understanding it. I don't even know if I've actually been somewhere that's blatantly racist either. The, what I've seen has been online in movies. Yeah. Something that has been theatrically presented to me. You know what I'm saying? Well, or I can, I've read yeah. about. I can tell a story of Oklahoma because my grandmother lived in Lawton, Oklahoma, and it was segregated until the 50s, right before my parents were born. And they still were very segregated, even in my, I guess, teenage to 20s. They had one side of town and they referred to it in a very racist way. Mm -hmm. And then they had the white side of town. It felt very different. Like when you went into grocery stores, there were not black people in the stores where the white people shopped but if you went to the black side of town that's where it was all black people so it was very segregated and that was into the 1990s to 2000 and unfortunately my grandparents grew up with that and they said some very racist things oh wow it was very apparent there but i didn't see it anywhere that i grew up you know what there is one thing i'm remembering one thing when my child was a baby We were at this gathering and she was being given gifts because it was the first time like people were seeing my kid. There was someone, a distant, like a distant person within the family. She was given a gift. There's a family member who does a bunch of cruises, goes goes everywhere, right? Right. And she brought these dolls, these really pretty handmade dolls. They had darker skin. And I'm videotaping my sweet little baby, one-year-old daughter. And out of nowhere, I hear, oh, that's an in-baby. What? And I turned so like I still have this video. I'll have to go find <laughs> like, it. Who said I, that? My whipped my head around so fast <laughs> to this person. I was like, excuse me? Yeah. I don't know why you think that's okay, but my daughter will never know that word. That is not a word. Yeah. So it was just really interesting to me because I had never experienced that. I have friends who say it all the time, but they're allowed to. It wasn't ever anything that I experienced someone yelling at another person or for any bad reason. And so for someone to just be sitting in this room and just say it like it was them taking a breath was my first experience with it. And I had it on video during a sweet moment of my daughter. And I was like, wow. Till this day, that moment still sits with me because it's a reminder. You don't know what people are hiding. Yeah. So the mob was happening and McCall did have to eventually call in the National Guard. His deputies could not handle it on their own. But I did see in a documentary that the National Guard showed up, but they didn't really stop it. They really just stood there and kind of let it keep happening. And this was so violent that many of the black families who lost their homes took it as a sign to leave Florida and they never came back. Harry sent a letter to Governor Warren of Florida two weeks after this mob happened, and he asked for them to take action against the leaders responsible for the vandalism and terrorism against the innocent black citizens of Groveland. But authorities never arrested a single member of the mob. Many of them were believed to be part of the KKK. Harry also continued a relentless assault on McCall and the state of Florida. He began conducting his own investigation. He was the one that actually obtained the affidavits from the three suspects that told everyone what had really happened to them once they were detained. 
Moore, along with the NAACP, charged the state and Sheriff McCall with abuse of the three men while in their custody, stating that they beat them so severely in order to receive a confession. And Sheriff McCall came back and said that was a damn lie. Mm. During this time, while they were waiting for trial, the Orlando paper ran a front page editorial cartoon showing three empty electric chair seats. The jury chosen for the trial was all white. Black people were not even allowed to be part of the legal process. The trial was a complete sham from the beginning yeah. till the end. Not surprisingly, a grand jury indicted the three suspects for rape. Shepard and Irvin were sentenced to death. Because Greenlee was only 16 at the time and still considered a minor, he was only sentenced to life in prison. Reviews of the trial later showed that it was filled with many flaws. As I said before, uh, I mentioned that there wasn't even yeah. proof that the girl had been raped. She, she wasn't even bruised or anything else had happened to her. No. So this started a lot of unrest. In the summer of 1951, it was the hottest summer on record in Florida. And it was also the hottest summer on record for racial tensions. It had been escalating and the Groveland Four really brought it to kind of that breaking point. Because now they're taking lives again. Right. There had also been a recent Supreme Court case that ruled that political parties were not allowed to exclude black members as they had been doing for years. Mm. And so just all of this coming together made the nationalistic white supremacists angry and the KKK felt threatened. They felt like they were losing ground and that black people were getting too many rights because they were losing ground. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, slavery was ended. Where do you think it's going to go? It's not going to just turn right back around. It's called progression. Civil rights groups were determined to make the change in Florida, and the Progressive Voter Leagues at this time had 100,000 new voters. The NAACP branches were also challenging Jim Crow ordinances in public places like train stations and restrooms because they still had those segregated Mm -hmm. in the South, but it wasn't like that in the North. Yeah. So the KKK pushed back hard. And during this summer, there were 12 bombings in the state of Florida. One of these bombings occurred in June at a Jewish center in Miami because the KKKs, they were not only after black Americans. They also were Mm anti-Semitic. In September, they bombed a Miami housing project that had recently opened its doors to black residents. And then in November, they bombed a frozen custard stand in Orlando because they were serving black people at their counter. Uh, It was a white owned business that welcomed black residents of Orlando to come get some ice cream. Wow. Such a threat. (laughs) It's just so funny. My God. Harry Moore, who had been openly pushing back and had been covering his own investigation, he realized that this was a scary time and he purchased a pistol and a shotgun. He kept a shotgun at his house and he carried a pistol in his car and he warned his family that he knew he was going to be a target, but he said he had a pistol and if anyone came after him, he planned to take a few of them down with him on his way out. (laughs) I feel that way right now too. (laughs) So after the three men were given either the death penalty or life in prison, the NAACP took on assisting the defense in appealing that sentence. Thurgood Marshall led the defense in an appeals hearing for Irvin and Shepard at the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court actually overturned the convictions of both men based on adverse pretrial publicity. So there was too much stuff out there and they pushed it back and said they deserve a new trial. What about the man who was shot 400 times? They don't care about him at this they point. Don't care. He's just, yeah, he got the death penalty in another way. That's what you get for running. 
I guess. Harry Moore did bring that up in all of his appeals, but that's nothing that they would have done anything about. They weren't going to convict the white sheriff and his deputies because they're all going to say that they were just doing their job. I don't know. Just the manner of death. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's enough for all of them. So the Supreme Court said these two men deserved a new trial. Guess who decided that he should transport them for their new trial? Sheriff Dingleberry. fucking McCall. <laughs> and I always come up with a name for people. <laughs> he went to pick them up from where they were being kept in prison, and he was supposed to transport them back to Lake County Jail for their trial. While transporting them, he claimed to have had a flat tire. He <laughs> pulled over down a dirt road to inspect the tire outside of a small town called Umatilla, Florida, and he then claimed that his two handcuffed prisoners, Shepard and Irvin, they were actually handcuffed together. He said that Shepard asked to use the bathroom. And he said when the two prisoners got out of the car, they attacked him. Oh, he drew his pistol and he shot both of them. How would you draw your pistol? If you got attacked? Or, yeah. I two men. How are, you, how are you getting to it? <laughs> I don't know. But he said that they overtook him and he shot each prisoner three times in self-defense. Oh, Wow. He has a wounded ego. (laughs) Sammy Shepard was killed instantly, but Irvin survived. He pretended to be Mm. dead. Yeah, sometimes you got to do that. So he survived. And the following morning at the hospital where he had been taken for treatment, Irvin told FBI agents and a reporter, Mabel Norris Reese, that the shooting was unprovoked. He said McCall had shot him and Shepard in cold blood. And then he staged the scene to make it look like an escape attempt. After staging, he had called his deputy, James Yates, to join him at the scene. And when James got there, he realized that Irvin was still breathing and he fired one last shot <gasps> through his neck. But Irvin survived. Okay. All right. The FBI. We know this already. Yeah, he's already in the hospital. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the FBI later found a bullet buried in the ground beneath Irvin's blood spot that appeared to support his account of that shooting. Okay. They also found a nail in the front wheel of McCall's car, and it appeared to have caused his claimed flat tire that night. McCall said he has no idea how the nail got there, but the FBI believed that it had been placed there. Oh. An all-white coroner's jury, made up of many of McCall's friends, took about half an hour to find Shepard's death as justified. (laughs) (laughs) That's so surprising. Oh, man. They concluded that McCall had been acting in line of duty and in self-defense, so McCall was cleared of any wrongdoing in Sammy Shepard's death. So then, (laughs) yeah, convenient. Harry Moore sent a letter on behalf of the NAACP to the governor again, asking them to look into the situation, but he had little faith in anything actually happening. This made him a target for the KKK as he had gone way above his station again in pushing for something to happen to Sheriff McCall. I'm guessing Sheriff McCall was involved in the KKK. I never found that, but I'm assuming he probably was. That or he was just kind of like, he might have not been like involved, involved. But he let them protect him. Well, you know, they how let, he let them do whatever they wanted. Certain people run other people. Maybe he had an agreement. He like made money or something. Yeah. Who knows? Harry Moore, as the executive director of the Florida NAACP, demanded that McCall be indicted for murder and requested that the governor suspend him from office. I'm picturing the cop from Gothica. What did he look With a like? tattoo on his chest? Sheriff Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked him up. Oh, my gosh. This whole time I've just been picturing him. If you know the Gothic reference, it makes sense. So Harry Moore had been trying to get cases through to the national NAACP so that Thurgood Marshall, their attorney, could really make a change. And Thurgood Marshall had been waiting for the right case. And when this happened and Walter Irvin survived, 
Thurgood Marshall saw this as a opportunity for the NAACP to really push. And so he took on the retrial of Walter Irvin. Good. Someone needed to step up. Yes. After Irvin recovered from the shooting, his retrial was moved to Marion County. So he would be nowhere around the Lake County deputies or Sheriff McCall. They offered him a plea bargain if he would plead guilty. And he said, no, I won't plead guilty. I did not rape this woman. Right. The jury found Irvin guilty and the judge sentenced him to death again. What the fuck? The case was appealed, but the conviction was upheld by the Florida Supreme Court. And Thurgood Marshall tried to take it all the way up to the Supreme Court. But in 1954, they actually declined to hear the case. So Irvin was kept in prison. Supporters of Irvin appealed to the governor for clemency. There was a newly elected governor. His name was Leroy Collins in 1955, and he actually commuted Irvin's sentence to life in prison. So he wouldn't get the death penalty. All right. Because he did not feel that the state had established guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. No, of course not. They did end up getting paroled. Greenlee, who was the 16-year-old who was already in life in prison, he was paroled in 1962, and Irvin was finally paroled in 1968. Okay. It's really sad, though, because Irvin came out of prison and a year later he actually passed away. Greenlee did move with his wife and daughter to Tennessee after he was let out and he uh, had a son with her. He lived until 2012. Greenlee did get to live into his old age. Even though Irving died a year later, at least he was out when got it happened. Out. Yeah. Now, because Harry had been so involved in this case, the NAACP national team felt like he had overstepped his bounds. Really? Yeah. Why? There was also some other shit going on because they felt like he was not bringing in the amount of membership that they needed. So you get into the stupid politics of this. They said that he wasn't continuing to organize the way that he wanted to. And he had like gotten sidetracked, focused on going after these anti-lynching uh, cases. And they wanted him because after all, they are business. They wanted him out getting recruiting. more members and making money. But he stated the reason he couldn't keep recruiting was because they raised yeah, the cost. scared though. Oh. They actually raised the cost of the annual dues from a dollar to two dollars. And he said that was cost Mm. prohibitive for a lot of poor black sharecroppers. They started building a case to remove him as the executive secretary from the Florida NAACP. (laughs) And in early December, they officially ousted him from his leadership position. But they told him he could stay on, just they wouldn't pay him. So the NAACP didn't actually want to take any action? Or are they just waiting to be so many in numbers before they take a step somewhere? I also think that they wanted him to just be kind of the figurehead and politically organized, but they didn't like him going in and like causing problems with the local white government. I don't know all of the specifics, but okay. Causing problems. Yeah. Uh, They wanted the NAACP to look a certain way and he was too much of a troublemaker. He's bringing too much attention and they didn't like it. And at the same time, he wasn't making the money for them anymore. So they were like, we don't want to keep paying you. Whatever happened, they ended up kicking him out. And it sucks because he was actually doing the work they needed. Right. But they just weren't ready for it yet. This was before the civil rights movement. You still had to like follow very strict protocol and they didn't want somebody who was this outspoken. Interesting. So we're into mid-December now of 1951, and Harry began receiving threats against him and his family and his property for his vocal stance he had taken against Sheriff McCall. One weekend while they were away from their home, someone broke into their house and stole Harry's shotgun that he kept for his self-defense. Did they know about it? That always makes me wonder if only one thing's stolen. Someone you knew? 
I don't know, or they were just casing their house and looking. They wanted to make sure he had no way to fight back if they wanted to come in and, and start something. This was also, as I mentioned before, all the bombings that had started to happen, those were just escalating. There had already been 12. So now we've led up to the day of the crime. It was 10.20 p.m. on Christmas Day. The Moors had, as I said, just gone to bed. After their, some cake. After some cake, celebrating their anniversary. Their daughter, Annie Peaches, mm-hmm. was already there, and she was sleeping in another room. And then Harry's mother, Rosa, was also staying at the house. Now, they lived in what is called a shotgun house. So they're raised houses yeah. because it's in swamp land. Mm-hmm. So they were easy to get underneath. They went to bed and around 1020 p.m. there was a loud blast. Oh, it was heard from miles around underneath. So a bomb went off. It was placed directly under Harry and Harriet's bedroom, went off right underneath their bed. Wow. The blast was heard from miles around. Friends and neighbors showed up right away and they transported Harry and Harriet out of the house After the attack, Moore's mother and their daughter, Annie, knew that they would be unable to get an ambulance willing to transport black victims. Uh So they had to call on nearby relatives to drive them to the nearest hospital. And they couldn't even go to the nearest hospital. They had to go to a hospital that would have a black doctor. Oh, that's so ridiculous. So fucked up. They had to go to the town of Sanford, which was more than 30 miles away on a dark two lane road. And on the way, Harry actually died in his mom's arms. So his mother was holding him in the back seat and he passed away. Harriet was unconscious and survived until they got to the hospital. She did wake up and she saw Harry and she was trying to talk to him. She didn't realize he was dead. Right. And the doctor realizing that her husband had already passed away, he wanted to make sure that she would have the will to live and fight because she did have, she had sustained injuries that he felt like he could fix, save her from. Mm Mm-hmm. So he told the nurse to give Harry a shot and basically pretend like he was still alive. Oh, so that she would see that they didn't let her know that he died, that he died because they knew that she would have given up. That's smart thinking. So Evangeline, their youngest daughter, arrived at the train station the morning after and she didn't see her mother or father, but her aunts and uncles were there and she knew something was very wrong. They broke the news to her and drove her to the hospital and she said her world was never the same again. You're on your way home. Coming to see our parents for There's no cell phones. It's Christmas. Wow. There's so many stories like this, too. So Harry's funeral was on January 1st, 1952 in Mims, Florida. They couldn't hold it at their normal church because it wasn't big enough for the amount of people who wanted to come and pay respects to Harry Moore. The FBI showed up early. They searched the entire area for bombs before they let anybody in. That's good. Harriet insisted on seeing her husband before the funeral. She was still in a very fragile state, but she was not going to miss seeing her husband laid to rest. Mm -hmm. She was brought in a wheelchair to his services so that she could see him and say her goodbyes. So just one day after Harry's funeral on January 2nd, Harriet was back in the hospital And she was there with her daughters and she just kept asking for more and more blankets. She just couldn't get warm. And then they said she started Mm. coughing up blood. Mm. And shortly after she passed away. Darn. They believe that the trip to the funeral home may have been what killed her as they think she gave up once she saw that her husband had truly passed away. She couldn't live without him. Yeah. She even made a comment supposedly to her children that they were old enough to take care of themselves. She didn't want to live in a world without Harry. Love like that. 
The Moore bombing shocked the nation and it stunned the world. Harry Moore was the first NAACP official ever killed. Yeah, not just a normal black dude. No. Right? (laughs) Goddamn. He was known. Protest letters flooded the desks of Governor Warren in Florida and President Truman. Even the Soviet ambassador condemned the bombing and the racism coming out of the United States. I mean, that's bad when the Soviet Union was like, you guys are fucked up. Eleanor Roosevelt was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and she said she was ashamed and sad about how this event reflected on the U.S. throughout the world. Oh, yeah. And by the way, did you hear about the guy we shot 400 times and then? I know. And the little kid that, you know, got pushed into the river because he said, I like your voice. <sighs> Sorry. In New York City, on January 5th, just four days after his official funeral, Jackie Robinson held a memorial service drawing approximately 3,000 mourners for Harry Moore. The NAACP also held a memorial service in March in the Madison Square Garden that was attended by 15,000 people. And speakers like Langston Hughes came to give their respects. Langston Hughes was a famous poet, a black poet, and he wrote a poem. I'll read one little excerpt from it. He said, and this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries, no bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. And this was actually the documentary I watched was called Freedom Never Dies. Hmm. I'm glad the NAACP is honoring him, but I have some beef with them. But they'd so. already fired him like <laughs> That's literally. That's why I'm like, uh... <laughs> but they didn't talk about that. They, okay, like, they don't that. talk. They're like, nope, 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 we're no. good. Over the years, a number of motives have been suggested for the Moores' deaths. All of them share a common theme, retribution against Harry Moore for his civil rights activities. Since the night of the explosion in 1951, there have been five separate criminal investigations initiated and completed. The first investigation was headed by the FBI, and it began on the night of the explosion. Fred Gordon was the first FBI agent on the scene of the bombed house, and he said as soon as he showed up, he just knew and felt that it had to have been done by the KKK. They left their robe. (laughs) (laughs) Their little pointy hats. It's like floating in the river. The FBI at the time was headed by J. Edgar Hoover, and he took personal investment in having the case cleared. But there was little evidence that the teams could find. They knew that the explosive used was dynamite. So while investigating, they visited local hardware stores in the area. And then they realized how hard it would be to track down as they said getting dynamite in the state of Florida was just as cigarettes (laughs) was just (laughs) as easy as buying a pack of chewing gum. Okay. The first break came one week after the bombing. A black man who operated a store mentioned that two white men had come in and asked him where the rich Professor Moore lived. Oh. Four other witnesses saw them and provided ID to the FBI. They were identified by fellow Klansmen. They actually got some Klansmen to admit who they were. They were Earl Brooklyn and Toolman Belvin. Great uh, names. I thought you were going to say Toolman Tim Allen. <laughs> Earl and Toolman. Earl's gotta die. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Earl Brooklyn was from Winter Garden, Florida, and many other members feared him in the KKK. They said he was a renegade and kind of a loose cannon. And one of them mentioned that he had shown up to a Klan meeting with a hand-drawn floor plan of Harry Moore's house and asking others to help him complete a job. So Toolman Belvin had been designated as the exalted Cyclops of the Groveland KKK. He had one hole instead of two in his hood. I think that's actually how they it's like a title. It. So dumb. The KKK is so dumb. So, so, so dumb. Just a bunch of little men with little peepees. So family. <laughs> I love saying that. <laughs> little peepees. <laughs> it's small dick energy. If you're part of the clan. I don't feel bad saying anything bad about anybody who's part of the KKK. Mm-mm-mm. Like, fuck you. Yep. It's a jingle now. We should what? put some music behind it. 
suck your own dick. They can't. It's too small. So family members of Toulmin and Earl provided alibis and fellow Klansmen refused to cooperate and testify against them. They knew they would be killed themselves if they broke the Klan oath. So apparently there's some stupid fucking oath for the Klan too. Of course. There was another man that was named. His name was Joseph Neville Cox and he was a bookkeeper for a tractor company. He was a cock. (laughs) (laughs) I just started laughing already. He was an old times Klan man and secretary of the Orlando Klan. The FBI interviewed him and he seemed very nervous, asking if they had any evidence that would hold up in court. Oh, like like they had like they're going to tell him the next day he actually committed suicide with a shotgun, which I take Mm -hmm. as a win. One less Klan man in the world. It's a good Mm -hmm. start. Brooklyn and Belvin or Earl and Toolman never faced a grand jury like Cox. They were dead within a year. Belvin passed away from cancer in the summer of 1952 and Brooklyn died from a heart attack on Christmas Day of 1952. Wow, that's karma. Exactly one year after the bombing. Okay. I feel like it's karma. Yeah, I don't know. The FBI continued to push, but no one would talk. They even tried indicting seven members of the Klan for perjury to see if that would pressure them into admission. The tactic failed when a judge squashed the indictment stating a grand jury had no jurisdiction in the matter. I don't know why this is so hard. The KKK's purpose is literally for To this. kill people. So <laughs> why why is this so hard to be like, I can't wrap my head around that. These They didn't do it. In August of 1955, the U.S. attorney in Miami officially closed the Moore case. So nobody was indicted. Nobody was brought to justice for the bombing. But you know what? You're talking about him now. Yes. So as long as it's continued to be talked about, there was justice. I hate saying it that way, but it is these types of stories. If yes. there was justice back then, would we be talking about That's him probably now? not because it's an unsolved. It's still considered right. unsolved to this day. Right. The investigation did reveal that Harry's civil rights advocacy made him a known target of the Klan. Even though no arrests were made in the case, they knew that those three men were involved. Mm-hmm. They all died. So there yeah. was really nothing more to do. No, divine intervention came in and said, whoop. Yep. (laughs) Karma. And the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division officially closed the file on the federal investigation in 2011. So Harry and Harriet gave their lives for the civil rights movement. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. Just weeks before his death, he had been ousted from the NAACP. But those who killed him were unaware that he had been kicked out. It wasn't well known. After his death, the NAACP declared him a hero and they used his name, which I don't know if I believe in this, but they did use his name to raise tens of thousands of dollars to fight. In a way, I guess maybe this is good because they used his name to raise all this money to fight for the causes that he had been asking them to take on forever, like lynching and voter rights and equality and salaries. So they raised money and they got that. But it's like, did he really have to die? Why didn't y'all just do that for him while he was still alive? I know. Why'd you fight him so hard? It's kind of a sensitive subject because his death was the catalyst to make these things happen that he wanted to see happen that they were scared to do. Right. (laughs) It's It's fucked up. It's a fucked up twist of fate. But yeah, it was a step that needed to happen. I'm not saying he needed to die, but it was a step that needed to happen. Otherwise, they wouldn't have realized his contribution. Exactly. And maybe they wouldn't have then recruited other very outspoken. I Exactly. Yeah. So in 1952, the year following his death, he was awarded the NAACP Spingarn Medal and his mom accepted on his behalf. Oh, Rosa. Yeah. 
Harry Moore has been overlooked for his part in the civil rights movement as it really took hold in the late 50s and the early 60s. That's what we all were taught. But he was a huge foundation to this movement. Huge, yeah. Although the story of the Moors' lives receded into obscurity for years, interest in them has been revived. There were documentaries. By 2004, the Brevard County had created the Harry T. and Harriet Moore Memorial Park and Interpretive Center at the home site in Mims, Florida. They have recreated their home, and it can oh, be toured today. That's and it's cool. exactly how it was on Christmas. It has the Christmas tree and everything. Oh, in really? It. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Brevard County also named its Justice Center after the Moors. In 2013, Harry T. and Harriet Moore were inducted into the Florida Civil Rights Hall of Fame. See, good. So they have come back into the limelight, Mm -hmm. but I had never heard of them. No, because information about them was probably suppressed in the same way that they're trying to do it again. And I came across this when we started talking about Christmas and wanting to do Christmas true crimes. And this was one that I found and I was like, this is a story that I feel needs to be told. I'm just a little white girl from Colorado who has never experienced any of this, but I was outraged when I read about the Groveland Four, Yeah, when I read about Willie James Mm -hmm. and his lynching. And Mm -hmm. well, what kind of shocks me a little bit is you found that by looking up a Christmas murder and we didn't know about it. Otherwise, you looked it up based on the date. Yes. Not based off of they should have been prominent people in the history of how things changed Mm -hmm. and they weren't. But he made a big impact. And he pushed the buttons of the people that needed to be pushed. And it's sad that it took his death. I'm really happy that he lived as long as he did because he did a lot of work over like Mm -hmm. 30 years. And he got to see his girls grow up. Right. But he didn't get to see his girls, you know, get married, have kids, any of that. Yeah. That was was robbed from him. It was robbed from him, but he was very dedicated to what he was doing. Yes. Despite of everything else. And that's who he was. And at Mm -hmm. least he was who he was. Yes. Up until that moment. And at least he got to have a sweet moment before it happened, too. That's true. He was celebrating their 25th anniversary. They were very in love and they got to have some cake. They went out on a good note. Yeah, they did. I watched the documentary Freedom Never Dies. It was put out by PBS and his daughters are in that documentary. And listening to them talk about their parents is just so sweet. And they did talk about how important all of that was to their father. And that was like his whole life's mission. Evangeline was talking about how they would spend weekends going to towns all over Florida, talking to black families and getting them involved in the NAACP. And his daughters were also actively involved in the civil rights movement. Good legacy. It is. No more dingleberry cops. Something's got to happen. Unfortunately, there's a lot of hymns. A lot of hymns. <laughs> out there. We oh, go scary. into Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. Lynchings are still occurring today. Mm-hmm. It's so happening all the time. It, there's so many. The list is long and long. And for whatever reason or another, certain ones make the headlines. Yes. And George Floyd. And there was another, a girl that was shot down Brianna, in, her, yeah, yeah. in her apartment. But the problem is, is what about the 10 that died before them in the same way that you didn't talk about? Right. Probably in that same city because it's happening all the time. And it's been happening since the early 1900s. Yes. Black people are always targeted for no fucking reason, especially young male adolescents that aren't even doing anything. They're literally just walking to the like local convenience store. Exactly. Several of them. We have a huge problem here. And to even here in other countries, I was watching something and it was a woman speaking from another country saying that one of the biggest problems in America is our black young men. 
And I'm like, you're not even from here. What the fuck are you even thinks, talking about? She thinks she needs to be she afraid was, of black She was men. saying this within a government meeting between countries. That that's one of our biggest issues. Because that's what they see if they're watching a certain sect no, of I our think news. It is, it's still propaganda. It's still what they do to portray a division between people here in America. The truth is, if the people in power would just step the fuck back and let us people in the daily world like just go Live. about our business, <laughs> we're not fighting. We don't have any animosity towards each no, other. We're all friends. I don't understand why they have to continue to push this divide between people because it's power or whatever. It's, it's how my, they control us. We already know why it's all happening. But, we but know the point is, is what are we going to do about it? Because Harry, Harry was trying and it takes people like Harry to change things. And there are a lot of Harry's right now. Yes. There are a lot of Harry's all over the place <laughs> right, right now <laughs> who are trying to do a lot of things. So and we need those people. It takes a lot of courage because you know that you become a target. Mm-hmm. We're probably a target after Jessica said what she said. <laughs> I say a lot of things. I know. But you know what? I would rather go down knowing right that side. I that I spoke up for myself. I wasn't complacent. I hope that you guys are enjoying these episodes. We know that we're very vocal. We're being authentic. We are who we are. And this is what we believe. I think originally we said we weren't going to get political. We weren't. We, but... But the more we look into cases and learn about things like we encourage all of you to stay lucid and we are becoming so it's not political in the last it's year. Yeah. Human rights. That's mm-hmm. we're You're just right. going to always come back to that. It's not political. It's human rights. So, well, we're going to wrap this up. Stay warm wherever you are. I'm shivering right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cold in my place. I was like, I'm not turning on the heater yet. I don't need the bill. Calm down. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you guys know where to find us. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, all at Lucid Lab Podcast, one word. Please send in your lab reports to lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. We appreciate your support. Anything that you can do and don't be dingleberries. Be a Harry Moore. Yes, be a Harry Moore or a Harry Potter. (laughs) Either way, make magic in the world however you can. And that's it. Stay lucid. Stay lucid. We'll see you next week. Bye. We will.